This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Today we have the latest in local artist and activist Robert Shetterly's Americans Who Tell the Truth series presentations. In this talk, you'll hear from Shetterly, from poets, from George Stevens Academy, and from Kelsey Juliana, a young activist featured in an Americans Who Tell the Truth portrait. Juliana speaks about her experiences with the Children's Trust lawsuit, which asserts that, quote, through the government's deliberate actions that cause climate change, it has violated the youngest generation's constitutional rights to life, liberty, and property, end quote. This case has been given a green light to proceed and will be going to trial in October. The talk was recorded in Blue Hill on June 3rd by Matt Murphy. I want to just read the number of people who've endorsed this event tonight. The Bagadoos Watershed Association, the Blue Hill Heritage Trust, College of the Atlantic, Indivisible, Island Peace and Justice, Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, Pox Christi, Peninsula Peace and Justice, Sierra Club, Veterans for Peace, and the World Ocean Observatory, which is Peter Neal. Uh, I also want to say a particular word of thanks to uh, the Maine Community Foundation. Um, they have been very generous over the years to the, uh, our project, Americans Who Tell the Truth, particularly to our educational program, the Samantha Smith Challenge. And this year, when uh, we wanted to bring Kelsey here and we needed money to get her here and to give her an honorarium, I called up Kathy Melio, which I do frequently, and uh, said, we need money, and uh, boom, we had money. Um, I'm not recommending that that's the way you all approach them <coughs> without filling out the forms or doing that stuff, but sometimes it works. Um, anyway, it was, uh, they've been terrific for us, and I, I thank them very much. Uh, da, 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 a couple more things. So I just want to tell you a little bit about the, the shape of this evening. The very next thing that's going to happen before I actually introduce Kelsey and... Uh, and she talks is something that happened that also Tony set up, which was that he went to um, Maria Johnson at GSA and told her that we were going to bring Kelsey here and maybe some of their students would like to be involved by responding to uh, both the suit that, that uh, Kelsey's brought and um, the public trust doctrine uh, issue of the case as well as just climate change. And five of these students wrote um, rather amazing poems, which you're going to hear tonight at different points. And our original idea was that we would, several of us would read the poems, and then we would decide sort of on a basis of some, set up some kind of hierarchy, you know, well, this is the best, second, third, fourth, et cetera. And actually, I was on the plane flying out to Eugene to meet Kelsey, and I had these poems with me, and I read them once, and thought, whoa, how am I going to decide? And then I read them again and thought, I shouldn't decide. This would not be, you shouldn't do this to poetry, that every one of these poems was rather astounding, and they shouldn't be, um, so my, should stand back just a little bit from it. <laughs> um, I just didn't want to uh, rate them like that at all. And so what we decided to do was uh, have each poet, and unfortunately only four of them could be here tonight, uh, 
you know, read their poems to you. And um, so I'm going to have the first two read, and then I'm going to, I want to make a little comment about what these poems represent to me, and then, um, and then we'll go on with the rest of the program. But the first one is um, Magnolia Vandiver is going to read her poem called Earth, and then she's also going to read um, Joey Cadayan's, uh, is it Joey? Joey. Yeah. Joey Cadayan's poem called, I have it right here. Imagine. Imagine, right. Um, so uh, without further ado, Magnolia, why don't you come up and read yours, and then take a little break and read uh, um, Joey's, and then uh, I want to talk a little bit more. So, thank you very much. Earth. She is cold and white and slowly dying, a huddled mass yearning to breathe free, strapped tightly to a hospital bed. Buzzing machines are driven into her, pumping out her blood and monitoring her slow breathing. The lush meadows of her hair are gone, leaving empty hollows and bare mountaintops. People with gloves and without faces cluster around her. They will not help her. They cannot look into her eyes. And they refuse to call her by her name. Outside in the sterile waiting room, people's voices are rising. Why can't we see her? Why can't we know what's going on? Be quiet, they are told. We are doing all we can. Inside, the machines keep pumping up and down. But we can only take and slash and burn and cut and scar for so long. Soon there will be nothing left, and she will disappear, leaving us standing on the crumbling illusion that we can survive without her. poem. Joey Kadarian couldn't be here tonight, so I'll read it. Imagine by Joey Kadarian. Unless you've seen it, you would never imagine the sheer size of the redwood, a magnificent beast with reddened skin and families resting upon the wide branches, of the squirrels playfully bounding and the birds tidying up their nests. Unless you've heard it, you would never imagine the soft calls of the meadow, the gentle lullaby of the chickadee and the chirps of the cicadas, the rustling grass in a calm and serene wind, the gentle breeze whooshing past your ears. Unless you felt it, you could never imagine the refreshing cool of the Pacific water, small and curious fish coming to nip at your pruny fingers, waves crashing behind you, pebbles and sand beneath your toes, and the California sun beating down on your back. But now you have to imagine. Because if you're in this lifetime, you know the fear of losing these precious things. As fires rage on, reducing those once giant redwoods to ash, and as the rain is falling less, and that grass becomes crunchy and stale, and as the ocean warms up, chasing off the cold-dwelling fish, you realize what you miss, 
You realize how precious those old memories are. And you stop wanting to imagine. You realize that it's our fault that this world left behind for us has been abused and beaten far too long because we won't do anything about it, because we want to only imagine. Imagine a perfect world where change doesn't exist and where those trees are still standing proud and where the grass is still trembling in soft winds and where the ocean still welcomes you with cool relief. So for now, we just imagine. Imagine we're helping, little by little, one by one, in a world we can't seem to save. So for now, just imagine. Because in years from now, you won't remember the beauty our world once held. Thank you, Magnolia. Just with those two poems, I, I'm sure you can see why I wasn't going to go anywhere near rating one over the other. Um, I also am sure that just listening to them, the words of those and the sentiments of them, you felt the same things I did, which was anger, indictment, bewilderment, you know, wonder and amazement that this could be happening, that has come to this point. And then I thought, you know, when I was um, reading the poems when I was on this airplane, um, I was thinking, you know, there are probably kids, actually millions of them, all over this world, given the same assignment, assignment, would write the same poems. They feel this. You know, and we took all the talk about, you know, the, the, uh, the statistics about what's, um, what climate change is doing in all the ways that it's doing it. Um, besides that, there's this incredible feeling that uh, people are having to undergo, especially young people, about what's uh, happening to the, this world and to them and their futures at this point, which is um, why we've got Kelsey here. So let me just tell you a little bit about this relationship. Um, at the end of um, the Samantha Smith Challenge last year, when at our event at Thomas College and our big celebration, uh, my son Aaron, who runs the program, hi Aaron, and Connie Carter, who's back there, who's our education director, uh, we got together and we said, well, gee, what are we going to do to sort of top what we've done this year? And we thought, well, it would be great to bring another young activist. I mean, I've, in Americans Tell the Truth, we've painted a number of young people, and it's the young people that, when we're talking to young people, that the young people are most impressed with. Um, it's their inspiration that, that surprises and, and inspires the kids. You know, people like Samantha Smith, like Nicole Maines, like Claudette Colvin, like Barbara Johns, like, uh, you know, on and on and on. There are a lot of names. <laughs> I can't even remember them right now. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of them, a lot of kids. Which is interesting in this country because, you know, kids can't vote. And often you see that the some of the most important change in this country is driven by, you know, people who can't vote. You know, women didn't have the right to vote, to, to get the vote, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we got together and we thought, what do we do? You know, and we thought, well, let's bring another, a, a living young activist and have her portrait painted, 
by me, and then we will unveil it you know, at this event in front of these kids, and then she will speak. And so we started looking at a lot of possibilities, and when you start looking, it's actually wonderful and amazing and humbling to see how many young activists there are doing great stuff in this country on a, just a huge array of issues. But for the same reason that you feel this um, sad energy in these poems by these young women, uh, we thought that the thing we've got to deal with is climate and the environment. And so we, we, I knew a little bit about this group called the Earth Guardians, who were a group of people, teenagers, who were you know, working hard to uh, you know, spread the word about, uh, about the climate and, and what was happening in the world. And then I knew about, a little bit about our Children's Trust and that there was a suit and a group of 21 teenagers had sued the United States under the public trust doctrine. And I started reading more about it and pretty soon you come to the lead case, which is Juliana versus United States. Juliana, well, who was that? You know, and... Uh, so you look a little bit more, and there's Kelsey Julianne, and then you see her being interviewed by Bill Moyers when she's 18, and you see you know, her giving TED Talks and you know, inspiring people all over the place, especially, well, not just especially young people, every people, you know, all people, you know, to understand what's at stake here and also understand that there's a way. You know, when we live in the kind of intransigence of our government uh, to maybe force this government to act, um, to short-circuit this process of denial and foot-dragging. And you know, it was interesting today, we were talking a little bit about um, the suit and the fact that the fossil fuel companies are no longer in the suit. It's just a, against the government now. And one, Kelsey used the word that about collusion, that there was this collusion. You know, we, we hear that word a lot now, right? <laughs> We hear that word a lot, uh, but it's not about the most important collusion. I mean, the collusion she was talking about between the fossil fuel companies and our government to avoid dealing with this issue is far more dangerous uh, to us, to the future, to democracy, to everything else that we hold dear than you know, whatever happened between the Russians and Trump or didn't. You know, it doesn't matter. This collusion is far worse and far more scary. Um, I wanted to read uh, just a couple things, and then I'm going to turn this over to, to Kelsey to talk. And this was, I, I've also painted another climate activist recently, uh, a woman named Kathleen Dean Moore. Maybe some of you know who she is. She's a, a philosopher. She's an activist. She's a naturalist. She's a brilliant writer. I recommend reading her. Um, she also, like these young people, um, writes with in, intense intelligence as well as very deep feeling uh, about what this is. And, and I thought of this quote from her when, uh, when I was reading these poems. And this is Kathleen Dean Moore. She says, outrage is a kind of truth-telling, naming the wrong for what it is, flinging away excuses. Outrage is a kind of respect treating powerful decision-makers as responsible human beings, not as victims or helpless pawns or idiots. Outrage is a response that acknowledges, bears witness to, the suffering of innocent beings. Outrage, it outrages me to be made into an instrument of death 
<clears throat> and injustice. Outrage is an expression of love. It is one step away from overpowering grief. That's what I felt when I was listening to those poems. One step away from overpowering grief. So Kelsey Juliana, the lead plaintiff in Juliana versus US, the suit trying to force the United States to um, engage in remediation, uh, recovery from uh, the damages of climate change. You know, it was based on the public trust doctrine, and Kelsey will talk more about that as she tells her story tonight. But I was, you know, when I was thinking about what she's doing, you know, this suit, um, it reminded me of Mario Savio. There are people in this room <laughs> who are of a vintage, like myself. I was in high school when uh, Mario Savio was reading, leading the free speech movement at Berkeley. 1964, you know, December 1964, he was leading that movement. And, uh, you know, it was, there was nothing like it. It was the first time that a group of, you know, a large group of college students had done active civil disobedience. And the, the primary issue was that the college was saying, you know, you can't have, you know, political actions on the campus. And they were saying, wait a minute, we're, you know, we like to think we're adults. Of course we can. This stuff is very meaningful to us. We demand the freedom, you know, to investigate political issues, you know, bring speakers here and act on those things. You know, the college said no, and this movement started. And, you know, it had a huge effect then later on both the anti-war and the civil rights movement uh, because of the energy that was generated then at campuses all over the place as this played out and Mario Savio was listened to. His most famous quote from that time when he was, as I remember, standing on top of a police cruiser uh, addressing uh, this big crowd of uh, thousands of students there is one that is really worth repeating. So I'm going to read it to you. There is a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus. You've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. You know, it struck me that in a much more kind of civilized way, <laughs> if you will, that that's what this suit is about. You know, it's about 21 kids throwing their bodies into the machine. You know, not to destroy the machine, not to fill it up with the shreds of their bodies, but to insist that it change insist that it actually do the work that it's supposed to do, which any sound government you know, should do. And Kelly will, Kelsey will tell you about the history of that, of you know, the, the public trust doctrine and how far back it goes and why. That you know, any responsible government should be protecting the resources of the environment you know, for that generation and the next, well, as we would say, seven generations. Um, so it was um, in uh, about eight weeks ago, six or eight weeks ago. You know, I went out to Eugene to, to meet her. We went to, into a couple schools together. 
spent a lot of time with her parents, who have been longtime environmental activists themselves. And at one point, her father, Tim, said, you know, we thought we were pretty good stuff, but then Kelsey leapfrogged over us. And, uh, <laughs> um, this suit is really important. I was just lucky enough when I was out there to be sitting, uh, well, at the time I came out there, she didn't know it, I don't know if anybody knew it, that there was going to be this uh, hearing in which the judge, uh, Thomas Coffin, was actually going to name a date for the, court, uh, the case to open, which is now October 29th. This case will go forward now. I mean, the government was trying everything possible to delay it, to have it dismissed, uh, to say that these young people didn't have standing to bring the case. The judge wouldn't buy it, and he uh, named this case. So I was sitting two rows back, and in front of me were all these kids. I was just seeing the backs of their heads and their necks as our government lawyers were telling them that their futures uh, would not get a hearing in this country. It was astounding. Uh, to see our own government talk to these kids this way, basically tell them that their concerns were not worth listening to. Um, you could feel there, though, that as is when the judge said, I don't care what you're saying, this is the date, the case is going forward, you could just feel that there was a hinge. History was going to move then. If this case goes forward, history can actually move on that hinge. And these little, heads, these little heads of these little kids sitting in front of me, you know, they were the hinge. It was an astounding moment. Um, I am so grateful for, for her and the work she does and the voice she makes and the spirit of the person that she is. We've now spent a fair amount of time together there and here. And uh, as you will certainly see very soon, she is a delight to be with. <laughs> Kelsey, do you If you're just joining us, you're listening to Main Currents on WERU-FM. Kelsey Juliana is part of the Children's Trust lawsuit, which asserts that the government has failed in its duty to protect the youngest generation from climate change. The case will be heard in October. She spoke in Blue Hill on June 3rd, along with Robert Shetterly and poets from George Stevens Academy, as part of Shetterly's Americans Who Tell the Truth portrait series. Ooh, the pressure's on, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me here. Um, it means a lot to be out in this amazing crowd. Um, when Rob first told me about the premise of this event, I was crying. So I'm really trying to keep it together here to be witnessing to your amazing poetry. And um, yeah, I want to recognize you over there as well. And thank you for bringing your students out. This is just, as an aspiring teacher, I'm absolutely going to put this in my back pocket. Um, but yeah, I, I do, I just want to give my, my gratitude. Um, so much of, the, of this movement has been just community bonding and making connections. And I think that that's how all of these young people are going to continue to go on in this case. I'm 22 years old. I started my climate work when I was 10, and that was just my climate work. <laughs> I officially started my legal action activism when I was 14. And, you know, some of these kids, they, they've just started this journey of, of kind of having their names and their faces out there in, this, in the court system and on this now national, I mean, this is a federal case, this federal platform. 
And I can tell you that it can definitely be daunting to, to feel the weight of the earth crumbling. I mean, I've never heard a metaphor like that. That was like beautiful. I mean, absolutely just striking to listen to. And to, to feel the pressures that you do as a young person moving forward and to be so young, we cannot go on, we cannot do that without community support and without this premise of love and compassion. That is going to drive us forward. It's going to protect us. It's going to re-inspire us. It's going to reinvigorate us. And so you showing up today is not just for me. It's for each other. And it's for all of the plaintiffs and the young people who are supported and represented on this case. So thank you. <clears throat> so I do I want to say, first off, that I, I know you have already done a little bit of research on the public trust at least and I'm really excited for a Q&A so I want to save a good amount of time for question and answer because I want to hear what, what you have to ask me and, and vice versa. Um, but just to start us off on an amazing note, I want to share a little bit about why I'm here today, at least why I think, I'd like to think I'm here today. So I, I mentioned that I've been uh, a climate and environmental activist for quite a long, over half my my life. Um, and when I was in middle school, I was quite, um, Magnolia, you mentioned it, you're, you felt your poem was a little angsty. Well, I have been there. <laughs> I don't know if that ever really leaves you. But when I was younger, I definitely felt that. I was very angsty. It was very emotional. I truly felt the weight of the world on my chest, on my shoulders. I was literally born from this amazing movement, the Warner Creek movement in Cascadian bioregion. My full name is Kelsey Cascadia Rose Juliana, and that's symbolic of the Cascadia movement rising and defeating the powers of greed and corporate interests. So really, I was born into this sense of valuing community and holding responsibility for the actions of people in the degradation of human and natural societies. And so when I was in middle school, I kind of, I, I had that history, that past of carrying this weight. Um, and it is intense. <laughs> it's, a, it's not fun feeling. And you feel like you have to literally physically put your body on the line in order to stop these powers of, of, um, of disaster and destruction. And it was... And I, I, joked with, I joked with Rob earlier, and I, I've said this before, but I felt like I burned out at age 11. Burned out in the activist sense of the word. In that I just, I, I didn't know how to carry on the legacy that my parents had, had set up for me um, through their activism. How to carry that into my own young life, growing up in Eugene, and not really knowing what my issue was. The old growth forests were protected. Spotted owl was recognized, and... And, you know, there was a whole other movement for that. What was my issue going to be? And how could I take part in this movement that I, I knew existed and that I was literally born into? But what was my role? And in middle school, uh, it was in seventh and eighth grade specifically, my professor, or my teacher, I'm in college, I say professor, my teacher, um, Andy Traceman, he showed us this book in class. And it was Americans Who Tell the Truth. And inside were all these amazing portraits of people past and present, some who I'd actually um, I've heard of or I'd, I'd listened to. And I, so I recognized a couple of the faces, and some of them I'd never I'd been, been exposed to before. 
And in those years, our teacher, Andy, he wanted to inspire the class to create this play around truth tellers, American truth tellers. At that time, you're studying you know, US history, you're studying um, global concepts and, what, and whatnot. And so we decided that we were going to create a full-length play called Truth Be Told. I mean, the name is, you know, you can, you can hear the body of work that Americans who tell the truth in the title of our play. And it was a musical. It was, we, all the students, they would pick out characters, and then they wrote their own scripts. And then we wrote um, songs. We we worked the song Blowing in the Wind to Sinking in the Sand. (laughs) Um, And and the characters that I portrayed were Yoko Ono, uh, Amy Goodman, and I acted her out and had an interview with a couple. um, uh, One of them was actually a vet. vet, And um, Rachel Corey. Yes. And I remember at that time, this work, the Americans Who Told the Truth, this work, and, and the, the process of, of researching and then performing, embodying these characters. Remember, context, middle school, already have a lot of emotions. I'm a double Pisces, so you get the gist. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, being able to portray these amazing truth-tellers was, super, was just so meaningful to me. So this year, all of a sudden, I get this email from this person, and we introduce, in a lengthy introduction, the idea of Americans to tell the truth, and I'm like, pause, pause. I know what this is. (laughs) Oh, I know. (laughs) And I just could not believe that here we have this full circle idea of, you know, me being inspired when I was in middle school to all of a sudden getting to participate. Um, what? <laughs> what? And I do want to say that not only is, are the characters, are, I mean, they're real people, but the, the portraits in Americans Tell the Truth so impactful to me, but it's the actually, it's the very premise of the work that I know Gail and Rob both do, and that looks like a lot of people in, in this community in Maine do as well, the very premise of the work that you do is actually something that is a core to my belief. And that's that in my history of activism, <laughs> I laugh because I know I'm young still, but whatever. In the history of my activism, I've realized that the fundamental um, definition of activism to me is just breaking that term up. And it's someone who acts. And that's all it is. It's taking action. And how do we take action? Because I do not expect, nor do I think it would even be um, of of much value, for anyone to follow my footsteps. To be inspired by me, that would be awesome. But to do what I do would be a disservice to you because you have your own unique gifts. And I really believe that everyone who comes who is part of this movement, who's going to progress our society, is doing so, and we are doing this collectively because you are bringing your authentic self to the table. And that's how we're going to move forward. That's how we're going to shift these powers that be, by switching up business as usual, by being our in true authentic selves and collectively moving things along. And so to have the work that Rob does, it just embodies that idea. We have someone who... <laughs> to put the spot on, on you for a second, you know, at a time, didn't know what to do, felt just 
overwhelmed and disappointed by the current state of the United States in particular and of our government decisions at the time and how, how do I express my emotions, how do I make a change? Well, Rob looked to his craft. He looked to the thing that he loved to do, to the medium that was true to him, that he had um, a profound impact in doing, even for, I, at the time, for yourself. It wasn't even for sharing with others, it was for yourself. And look at the impact that that work has done. Now, can I do that work? Maybe not. But the work that Rob is doing is activism, and it's so important, and it's made such an impact on me. And so I really believe that having you all present your poems, I don't know if this is your preferred medium of expression or art or activism even, but don't stop. Because what you're doing is you're showing up to the table in your authentic selves and you're bringing something that not all of us can. And that's so important. That's so key. I almost just want to go to Q&A because I'm so curious to know what you all know about the public trust doctrine. You can geek out a little bit over law. <laughs> um, should I keep going or should I? Keep going? Okay. To the case. So, um, how I got to the case. I feel like I can be very real with you all, which is awesome. <laughs> And how I got to this case has been an emotional journey, for sure. Like I said, I felt like I burned out at age 11. <laughs> then all of a sudden I learned about this person named Bill McKibben. Mm-hmm, there we go. <laughs> we have a good crowd here. And so I was in fifth grade at the time, and Bill McKibben, I just got introduced to his work. And he was about to, um, well, he inspired this first International Day of Climate Action. It was the first ever 350 event, actually. And I was so inspired by his work that um, we co-organized, me, my father, my whole family, actually, and a couple other people. Uh, I believe Mary Wood was one of the other organizers. We hosted this Day of Climate Action. So we walked around. It was, I mean, at the time, it was, it was just small, a local event, um, I joked earlier with Richard and Rob that uh, when they powdered my nose for the interview, I was like, I remember the first time I powdered my nose. I got to powder my nose for an interview. And it was at that event where we, we just had posters. I had my, uh, my Girl Scout team or my soccer team. They showed up. They were like, they showed up in their little um, animal pajamas because we were talking about endangered species. <laughs> Stuffed animals and penguins and stuff. <laughs> you know, whatever. It, it, all, it all counts. And, um, and they, uh, anyways, they interrupted me when I was, like, going on a rant about, like, this is why we're out here. And they're like, oh, hold on, sorry, sweetie, we just need to powder your nose. Anyways. <laughs> Whatever. Um, I learned how to go along with that. <laughs> and that was the first sort of true engagement. After that, it was just a series of escalations of, active, of actions. And again, I think that they're, they're all, they all matter. Because even if they're small in the moment, you never know who you're going to inspire. I ended up inspiring a ton of young people who continue to this day to be part of the climate movement. Um, the year after what we did, um, 
we dressed up as Oregon University of Oregon cheerleaders. That's the Ducks are my hometown. And we dressed up as cheerleaders, and we have, you know, the O is our, is our symbol. And we put the Earth sticker in the middle of the O, and we had pom-poms. And it was one of the first, like, ESPN days of uh, ESPN filming for the football team. And so we, went, <laughs> so we went at the stadium, and we put ourselves right in front of the ESPN cameras, and we chanted, Stop global warming or we're all dead ducks! <laughs> And you have to imagine, we're like 11, 12-year-olds. We got like this stuff going on. (laughs) And we had thousands, I mean tens, literally tens of thousands of people walking across the bridge, walking past us. We had a crowd of 100 people at a time because they just see, you know, young fans (laughs) until they come closer. And then we had pamphlets out there. So finding creative ways to engage at a young, when I was young, especially, was so key. Moving through time, um, it wasn't until I was in eighth grade I had done the, you know, the, the play. Um, I had already a bit of a name for myself in Eugene for kind of being a troublemaker in terms of advocating for action on the environment. And I learned of my peer, Alec Lourdes of I Matter organization, I learned that he was going to be taking legal action from his home state of California, and he was going to be supported by this organization, Our Children's Trust, who, in fact, was my neighbor in Eugene. I know. Look how things work out. And so I immediately, I said, I need to be part of this. I love the work that I'm doing locally in Eugene, but I know I know that this impact can be greater, and I know that I can reach out to my audience greater if I just take a different, take a, an escalated stand. And so, 14 at the time, I was entering high school, and I joined this case. Um, the formal name is as Chernak versus Kitzhaber, now Chernak versus Brown. And like I mentioned earlier, this case is still in the courts. This has been in the courts since 2011, and even in the state of Oregon. We are having to so actively fight for our right to be in court and to be recognized. And in the case of my Oregon state, of my Oregon case, the reason why we keep it on being dismissed is so blatantly a matter of politics. Our judge was an ex-legislator, and he keeps on telling us every time we go to court, no, this belongs to the legislative branch. Why don't you go talk, knock on Governor Brown's door? This isn't up to me. So it's about going through the process, I guess. But does that deter? No. Absolutely not. Because there are always ways to take action. And um, as soon as I graduated high school, I decided that I needed to walk my talk. If I was going to be talking about climate activism, and if I was going to be, you know, kind of stepping into this leadership role, especially in the climate activist, uh, climate movement, I needed to really understand the ways that this issue was multifaceted and the ways that it was affecting my country. So I spent four months, I walked about 1,600 miles with the Great March for Climate Action. I was dropped off in the middle of Nebraska, and I walked um, up until Washington, D.C., took a detour to go to New York City for the People's Climate March, came back down to Indiana, and finished off. And on that walk, um, and I do talk about this in my TED Talk, and that was the premise of my speech, actually, is, is youth, um, yeah, youth activism and active hope. 
And on that walk, what I learned is that truly, this is an intergenerational movement. Absolutely. Just like the public trust doctrine, the very fundamental principle, like legal principle of the work that these youth are doing is intergenerational. That's the premise of it. However, the youth movement across this nation and now across the world is so much, uh, oh, so the climate movement is so much so youth-driven. And I met Cora May in Lincoln, Nebraska, who inspired her grandfather, Randy Thompson, who you may know, sued the state of Nebraska, conservative rancher, one of the key advocates against the Keystone Excel pipeline. I met young people in Pennsylvania and in Indiana and in D.C., all these amazing people who were taking a stand and saying, no, the powers of injustice will not be tolerated in my community, and I'm a young person, and because I'm young, I bet you haven't heard of me, and I bet you don't expect for me to take a stand, but that's exactly what I'm going to do. And what I learned is that the fact that you're young is actually powerful in and of itself. Because you have the element of moral authority. And moral authority cannot be questioned. You don't have to prove moral authority. That is one of our greatest gifts. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. Kelsey Juliana is part of the Children's Trust lawsuit, which asserts that the government has failed in its duty to protect the youngest generation from climate change. She spoke in Blue Hill on June 3rd, along with Robert Shetterly and poets from George Stevens Academy, as part of Shetterly's Americans Who Tell the Truth portrait series. Where am I in the timeline? Oh, I watched Cross Country. Okay. So this legal, so this federal case, let's talk about that for a minute. This federal case is, as they've told me, groundbreaking. And it's so for several reasons. It is, in fact, 21 young people. How is it 21? It's 21 because 21 young people stood up and they said, this matters to me. Climate change is hurting my home. It's hurting my health. It's hurting my family's lifestyle. It's hurting my future. I want to take a stand and... This is the way that I want to take action on this issue. 21 young people wanted to be part of this movement. One of my co-plaintiffs and a dear, dear friend, Jacob LaBelle, he actually joined onto this case a week before we filed. Um, his his uh, neighbor, they both live in rural um, Oregon. In fact, Jacob actually supplements 85% of his food source, everything, from his farm. I mean, they make everything. It's pretty phenomenal. The one thing they don't do is bread, to which he drives up once or twice a week to get bread, to buy bread from me, which I think is pretty cute <laughs> um, at my bakery. But um, anyways, Jacob got inspired to be on this case from his neighbor, Alex. Alex got inspired to be on this case from myself because he came to one of my state hearings. And so you can just see these connections has been integral to the foundation of this case and to the youth movement in general, and to the climate movement in general, I believe. Um, but anyways, 21 young people are doing this phenomenal thing, and we have inspired cases across the world. I've been to Norway, and I've been to the Philippines, both to talk and make connections with people who are taking their governments, or in the case of the Philippines, their industries, 
to court and holding them accountable for their malpractices in perpetrating climate change and neglecting the rights of its citizens. And those are just two of international cases. There's also cases inspired by our Children's Trust and the work that we're doing in the States, in Pakistan, in India, Bangladesh, um, in Canada. We're um, in... I feel like I'm forgetting a couple. But yeah, you get the gist. <laughs> All over the world. And I'll, t- I'll, I'll end on this because then I, want, I do want to come back and do Q&A and hear what you have to, to say or ask. Um, but the public trust doctrine, again, is key to this, to this whole thing. And the public trust, it sounds like many of you know, it dates back to 535 BC, ancient Roman Justinian times. So if anyone asks you how much do you really know, you can just say that phrase and be like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> this, is big, this is a big deal, people, Justinian time. No, just kidding. Um, but this case is, is ancient. It has ancient roots, and it's been used since that time all over the world. And it's one of the most recognized pieces of common law in that it's so fundamental in stating that the government, as an elected body of the people who is supposed to represent the needs of the citizens, has a responsibility, a legal responsibility, as well as a moral moral responsibility in ensuring that resources needed for the survival of its citizens are protected under law for the use of current generations, but this is the intergenerational piece, for the use of future generations. So it's one of our only pieces of law that actually recognizes the needs of upcoming generations, which is obviously, we're talking about our climate system, necessary. I mean, unbelievable, yeah. You can thank the ancient Roman. And so this, this, this doctrine has been, has been used in um, our nation, has been used and all over the world. It was so fundamental to um, the building of the Constitution that it actually was part of the basis of our Constitution. And, um, and we're arguing that, hey, federal government, there are states that, in the state of Oregon, we have several entities, natural entities, that are protected under the public trust. Our coastlines were a huge one that we protected under the public trust. And we're saying, federal government, don't you think that it's important to protect this all-encompassing resource? I mean, the atmosphere, uh, underneath the atmosphere are all of these other systems that are already protected. But actually, if we don't protect this all-encompassing resource, you're actually failing your responsibilities in protecting those underlying systems. So not only are you failing your responsibilities in protecting the citizens, the people who depend on this natural resource, the stability of these natural resources for their survival, but you're actually neglecting your responsibilities in protecting these resources already recognized under law. And so this case is precedent-setting in that sense, but it's also so necessary because we're looking at the long-term permanent protection of these necessary natural resources for not only these generations, but generations to come, which we all know climate change disproportionately affects many different communities, and the younger generations and the future generations are some of those communities. Yeah. No, I'll come back to you. That's what I mean.
So Kelsey's going to sit down for a minute, and she's going to come back in a little bit for our Q&A. But we're going to have um, some more poems right now. And um, Amara Birdsell and Juliette Claybaugh are going to read. Which one? Oh, yeah. You want me to go first? Sure. Cracked Portraits by Amara Birdsell. My air is dying. And when the sea yells to the wind and the rains drench the earth, I feel the world. Her rain is blood that drips slowly down into her roots. I hear the soil, the dirt. I feel her loneliness. I hear her cry. Her patience is lost sand sinking into the unsettled sea. She wants to know. Her questions are angry bees, swarming, stinging, killing. She needs to understand why we do this. She is so loud. But still, we are too deaf. All her noise is so silent. She's tired. Her mountains of light are sinking like golden sands. The forests falling away without explanation. Her pretty blue eyes crumbling. Her flowers, once heaven's stars, but now fading, withering, gone. She's ebbing. The earth is the moon waning, but unlike the moon, she will never come back. Our air is dying. Thank you. Not so distant future. The beaches that once stretched far from the ocean are nothing but slivers of sand, thin as crescent moon. The homes that still stand are empty shells, battered and broken from waves and wind. I imagine the town full of life like it used to be, people playing on the beach, the bustling of cars on the street, of people just living their lives. They have been ripped from their homes and everything familiar to them. As I stand on that desolate shore, I struggle to come to terms with the inevitability of the next storm the next flood, the next devastated city, and with the people who refuse to help our drowning homes. I was driving um, on that back road from East Blue Hill to Blue Hill the other day, and there was a program on NPR about um, sea level rise. And just as I was getting to that place, we sort of come down the hill. It's where John Peters Inn used to be, and actually where Doug and Posey used to live, right? That area there. Uh, I was driving along the road. They said, no, a conservative estimate says, you know, six to eight feet higher in, I don't know, 50 years. Well, Peter would know. I think it was something like that. It, and I realized I'd be driving underwater right now, you know. And then I started to look around at uh, this community with that much 
sea level rise. Wow, what a difference. It would be an entirely different place. We'd all be up on the side of Awanajo, you know, <laughs> clinging to the side. Um, this is real, you know. These kids have got it, you know. Kelsey's got it. Um, we have got to be, um, uh, you know, doing more about this. So um, I want you to come up, and I want people to ask you questions, and um, let you let you deal with that. <laughs> yeah. I want to know the progression from the courts that started, how we faced, and then how did they look at this? Question was progress of the case. Mm. Great question. I know it gets a, it get. So I'm, I'm on two cases still, and when our children's trust first helped in 2011, they first helped young people in actually all, all um, 50 states. I think it was technically 49, whatever. Basically, in every state in the U.S young people took legal actions, whether it be petitions or lawsuits, back in 2011. Uh, a lot of them, I mean, basically all of them were dismissed, thrown out of court. Mine is the only one that's still in the courts. A couple of them, um, Colorado, um, North Carolina, Massachusetts, recently Alaska just had their hearing. So a couple of them have, have uh, refiled. But my state case, that's totally separate. My, for this federal case, has always been um, out of the Eugene District Courthouse. So when we go to trial on October 29th, it'll be in Eugene, in our district courthouse. And I can't quite remember how they worked it out, because essentially what happened is we filed this case in August of 2015, and then immediately um, we had the federal government attempt to dismiss our case, and then we also had the fossil fuel industry, basically this, we had three different coalitions comprising 500 international fossil fuel companies, so essentially every single fossil fuel industry in the entire world, um, who collectively petitioned to join as intervener defendants. So they're like, hey, this would negatively impact us, so we're going to join the federal government side and just make it visually obvious what's going on here. I was like, great, that only helps us out, but that's fine. Um, so we'd go to court and it'd be 21, you can just imagine, 21 young people filling up at least three pews, or, or whatever they call them in the courtroom. <laughs> Don't put that on the record. And, and then you have, and our attorneys, courtrooms packed. Every single time we've gone to court, we've had um, the entire courthouse reserved for us. We've also have it live streamed at several courthouses in other cities because of community demand. They say, no, no, we can't be there. We know because we won't fit. So we're gonna. We actually had um, a busload of high school students who drove down the night before and then camped out at the courthouse steps. That at 5 a.m. they were there, <laughs> ready to wait in line. I was like, that's really, it's really awesome. I won't be there till 10 though. But anyways, okay, I'm digressing. But. Um, the point is on that on this federal case, we've been in the in the Eugene District Courts um, since basically day one, and we'll be there until we get to the Supreme Court. Uh, and when we um, the the fossil fuel industry again, like I said, they petitioned to be off the case after 
we, and that was granted, because we're like, yeah, we didn't want you anyways. Um, but we went to court twice, oh, sorry, twice um, to address oral arguments on whether or not we have standing in the courts and whether or not we have a right to get to the courts because the government wanted to dismiss our case before it got to trial. And so we've gone actually in front of two judges. We went in front of Judge Coffin, and then we went in front of the highest judge in this district court, Judge Ann Aiken. So we've, we've gone to two, we sat in front of two federal district judges in the same courthouse. And then even after that, the federal government, under the Trump administration now, um, petitioned to um, throw our case out using what's called a writ, a writ of mandamus. It's a very, very rare piece of law. And that basically put a pause on our case. So we should have heard trial starting February 15th of this year. But because of this legal pause, we then had to go down to Ninth Circuit, um, uh, San Francisco, into the Court of Appeals, and we heard in front of a three-judge panel, you know, our arguments to dismiss the writ, which were granted, of course. Yeah, the, the federal government was basically saying that it was incredibly burdensome to try and find experts to argue, to yes, to, to support their side. And yes, this is true verbiage. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. Yes, they even, they said in front of the judge, they're like, Your Honor, people are calling this the trial of the century. Like, Okay, so pressure's on? What's your point? You've been listening to Maine Current's independent local news, views, and culture. Heard now on the first Thursday of every month from 10 to 11 o'clock. And as always, archived at WERU.org. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Today you heard from Kelsey Giuliana in a talk that was recorded in Blue Hill by Matt Murphy on June 3rd. More on Americans Who Tell the Truth portrait series can be found at americanswhotellthetruth.org, where you can also type in Kelsey Juliana's name to see the portrait and learn more about her and the lawsuit that she spoke about in today's program. You're listening to Community Radio WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Keep it tuned right here for On the Wing with Mark Dyer, coming up next.